your host, KT Thomas, is the Director of Portfolio Services at New Day Solutions, a firm offering expertise in retirement planning with more than 25 years of experience, dedicated to high net worth individuals, families, and business owners. We work with you to have a coordinated approach for your comprehensive investment goals, providing concierge service for all generations from a team who can see things from your side of the table. Go to NewDaySolutions.com for more information. Working with your investments, retirement, insurance, estate, or tax planning, or just dealing with everyday expenses, your money matters. Let KT Thomas help you make the most of it. This is KT's Money Matters. Hey there, and welcome back. This is KT from KT's Money Matters. Talking about your quips and tips and the best ways to help you with finance. As we're coming to the close of 2018, Many of you are going to talk about better ways, maybe simple ways, to just help you get a better hold of your finances. You know, I talk about this a lot over the course of the year. And one of the things I think about is, you know, people seem to think that they're they're these big, grand plans. I'm going to pay off all my credit cards. I'm going to save the maximum amount my 401k. I am never going to spend money on the Visa card again. And usually what I find is those great big lofty goals, although they can be really, really fun and exciting to think about, you have to have some pieces inside that kind of help push those goals forward. And sometimes it's just small changes that you make along the way that can actually drive the biggest change. Now, with this, I went looking at different shows that we had over the course of the year that I thought might help you find three or four ways that you might actually help yourself get to your goals. So some actionable steps, things you can actually learn or do that could help start to save you money or make you money in 2019 without a tremendous amount of pain and crying. And so one of the things I did earlier in the year was I did these little quick tips, these little four or five minute money things that were just meant to give you like an idea to think about that weren't meant to be a whole show, just kind of a little thought. So I've strung some of them together. And the first one is the take. I think people get really caught up in how much am I making gross and not really thinking about how this is really completely affecting them financially. The take talks a little bit about the benefits of tax-exempt savings for people in higher tax brackets. It doesn't really matter what the top number is. It really matters what the take-home pay number is. Now, this is also true when we think about work in that there's your base pay and then there's the value of all the benefits that you also receive stacked on top of that pay so that you can understand what the economic take is of a particular job. So you can use it either to think about investments or you could use it to think about your value in the workplace and how you get compensated. And then on the flip side with a take, If I have to commute to work, what's that cost me? How many hours do I spend in my car every week that I don't get paid for? And how does that erode the take? So this is just about taking money from that kind of big number that people love to talk about. Like self-employed people love to talk about revenue as an example, but they don't always talk about profit, which the bottom line is revenue is revenue. And profit is what you get after you pay all your expenses. And really, that's the only part that matters. 
Um, but the idea of taking yourself down to that level where you're looking at, what does this mean to me? And the idea of adding this to different things. So I talk about this a little bit. I'll play that little quick tip for you now, and you'll get to listen to the take. So one of the things that I talk about in my book, The Hardworking Woman's Guide to Money, is the idea of the take. So what do I mean by the take? Well, all investments have trade-offs. We all hope to make money on all of our investments, but some of our investments grow better than others. Some have an ability maybe not to pay taxes right now, but pay them later. Some have the ability to maybe never pay taxes on those earnings. Today, I'm going to focus on the idea of never paying taxes on those earnings. And I call this the take. Well, who should care about this? Investors that are in a higher tax bracket, no matter what tax rates are, and I know we're getting ready to go through this big tax rate change, but when it's all said and done, there will be some people in a higher tax rate, higher than 15 or 20 or 25%, who could really benefit from the idea of using tax-exempt investments to give them a little bit more real return. And so what I mean about that is if you earn $500 in a bond, but you have to pay taxes on that earnings, then maybe your take is $400, say if you're in a 20% tax rate. Now, let's say I earned $500 and I earned it in a tax-free bond. Well, then I earn $500 and I can keep $500. So the $500 becomes my take or my keepable return. This is super important as a concept about driving your finances throughout your life is that it's important to see what you're actually making from it and then what that really means to you in real money. Because I think people get caught up a lot in the idea of, quote, rates of return or the value on my account at any given moment. But what they really should be thinking about is, what does that mean to me? What do I get to do with it? How much will I actually net after everything is taken care of? And what is my take? So once you've figured out how to calculate your take and figure out where you are, one of the things I always say to people is that they want to take care of their credit. There's so much access to people's credit out there when you think about like these big credit data theft that's happening, you know, whether it's uh, Experian. When I recorded this episode 10, Back in the spring, it was recently after the Experian credit crisis, but frankly, Marriott had one since then, and it seems to happen a lot. And so are there ways for you to protect yourself and for your credit? And I talk about that in episode 10. Let's have a listen. So by now, you've probably heard about the Equifax breach and then long forgotten it. But the question I got from people is, am I at risk? Should I be worried about this? Even Equifax admits that hundreds of thousands of individuals lost their information that day, and that they don't really know how victims are going to have this information used against them. I got to tell you, it feels like I'm hearing this all the time. There was a big credit break with this store or with this company or with this insurance company. I feel like I'm hearing it every day. And if you feel like you're hearing it every day, you know what? You're right. The internet has given us all more access to things that we didn't have before, and cybercrime is no exception. I want you to think about protecting your credit like protecting your house. Let's think for a minute. Something like 80% of all home robberies happen because somebody left a door or a window open. So if you want to save your house from being robbed 80% of the time, 
you lock your house. How can you do that for your credit? Well, one of the ways you can protect your credit is simply by managing your passwords more regularly. Now, I know this is terrible. We all have them written down on little napkins someplace. But regular management of your passwords, changing your passwords, making sure they're not all in the same place, and not clicking on links for emails that people send you that you're not really sure, is like locking your house in the credit world. So 80% saving some of the time seems better than zero. But could I even increase my chances of avoiding credit fraud to a greater amount, maybe 90%, maybe even 95%? Well, you actually can. You can do this by doing the one thing the credit agencies don't want you to do. You could freeze your credit. Why do you ask? Well, the reason's in the name. They are credit reporting companies, and their primary source of revenue is selling this information to others. If you freeze your credit, you're really taking yourself off the credit grid. So why don't people just freeze their credit? Well, you know, there are lots of reasons. This has been available for a very long time. But technology and marketing in the last 10 years has really led people to believe that not only should they have access to their credit, but they should be seeing their credit all the time from any device, anytime they want. They should be getting monitoring. They should be paying for monitoring. And all of this access and information has made us all actually a little less safe, but it has created a new stream of income for the credit monitoring and reporting companies. People now pay as much as $20 to $40 a month monitoring their credit or protecting their identity, however the marketing pitch goes. So you could freeze your credit for $20 to $30 for as long as you want to keep it frozen. That's right, for one-time cost, you could freeze your credit versus the cost of one month of monitoring. Sometimes people are worried that if they freeze their credit, it'll be a hassle to turn it back on. But that's actually not true. It's actually pretty easy. So you get a special code when you lock it, and then you use this code when you're ready to open it back up. So next you're saying to me, well, what if I go to buy a car or I want to refinance my mortgage? So is it going to be easy? It's like, it really is. You just go online and you put in your code and you open it right up and it happens right away. Then you apply for the car loan, you get everything you need. And when it's all done for $30, you lock it up again. This moves makes it much more difficult for someone to get credit in your name. I think about this like adding a safe for your valuables in the house. You're just a little bit more protected. Now, a word of caution when we're talking about locking your credit, the credit reporting agency will really try to get you to do almost anything instead. They have something called a pause, which slows it down a little bit, and uh, they'll sell that to you. Of course, they'll love you to do credit monitoring, but when the day's done, how they get paid really has nothing to do with whether or not this is better for you or not. Remember, this is maintaining a business revenue for them. So consider this simple step. Save 20 to $40 a month, and you could save up to $2,400 over the next five years. You could probably find something worth spending that money on, maybe toward the down payment of that next car. So just to sum it up, what I really think about is if you don't want other people to have access to your credit, you can decide to freeze your credit. It's a proactive move. You'd need to take advantage of each of the three credit bureaus, but it's very simple to do. And frankly, it's easy to turn back on later on. But what it does is it pulls you out of that pool of people always running your credit. And as a result, you get to skip most of the fraud. And then even if somebody does steal your information, the one thing they all want to try to do is go borrow money in your name. But that's actually really difficult to do because no one can run your credit without your authority. So this helps eliminate a large part 
of what you might risk when you think about credit. The other thing is it allows you to skip credit monitoring. Wouldn't that be great? People are paying a lot of money on that every month. So if you're paying money for credit monitoring every month, you might want to think about freezing your credit instead, which costs like less than a month's payment, and then keeping the other 11 months and maybe save that money instead or put it down towards debt or put it, you know, however you might like to spend it. But the idea that you're paying somebody to monitor the thing that they're monitoring seems kind of crazy. We could take that right off the list. That would be great. My last idea is about getting a lot of getting a lot smarter with your everyday spending. And so uh, one of my favorite episodes, which right now is kind of salient because the price of gas is so cheap, is episode 12. And in episode 12, I talk a lot about whether or not you should pay for a premium grade of gas or you should just buy regular gas. So why don't we take a listen to that? As a consumer, I've always wondered, should I be putting the best gas in my car? Does my car really need that super expensive gas? the one that's always 40 cents or more expensive than the regular unleaded. If you've wondered about this too, this show is for you. Sometimes when I'm gassing up my car, I think maybe I should be putting that higher gas in. But frankly, it's kind of expensive. Even though it's just a little bit right now, I always think about what these things mean over time. So I started to do a little research and I'll give you some stats to sort of frame the conversation. For many of us, we fill our tank at least once a week. And although my car takes 14 gallons, the average American car actually holds 12 gallons. So that's 40 cents per gallon every time 12 gallons once a week. So I started to wonder, how did this premium gas come along anyway? Well, it turns out that premium gas started way back with John D. Rockefeller, who was, you know, really the founder of Standard Oil, who later became Mobile Exxon and all of these other energy companies came off of this one company. And he put Ajax cleaner in gasoline and he called it premium. So I don't know, how valuable is that? Sometimes people put premium in because it's premium and they feel like they deserve the best, right? Shouldn't I put the best gas in my car because I really love my car? Won't it run better? Won't it get better gas mileage? So I thought I'd answer those questions. Although there are a few high combustion engines like sports cars or sometimes vehicles that are towing large loads up um, big hills that would do really well on a high octane option, The fact of the matter is, almost all of us could burn regular unleaded gasoline with little change. But don't I get better gas mileage, you ask, by putting the premium in? Doesn't it go further? Technically, yes. But the increase is so minor that you'd actually do better by just making sure you had the right amount of air in your tires. But won't the engine knock if I start putting cheap gas in there? Well, this used to be a huge problem. I'm not a car mechanic, but there was a time when cars misfired based on the fact that the gas got too hot which is actually the whole point of having the cleaning agent. It didn't really hurt the car, but it made a lot of noise and made people uncomfortable. So in 1996, the automotive industry developed a sensor, and that sensor adjusts the timing to eliminate the knocking that you have from the gas. Now, many of us choose one in the middle, right? The plus, we feel like it's a good compromise. It's not as expensive as the premium, but it's better than the regular unleaded. Now, of course, gas manufacturers know this, but to be frank, It just means that you overpaid less. If it doesn't seem like enough savings to change, consider this. If you pay 40 cents extra per gallon for 12 gallons every week and keep your car for four years, you have spent an additional $1,000 on your car than you planned for no tangible benefit. I can think of a lot of other things I'd rather spend $1,000 on. 
If one of your goals is to spend less, there are ways that you could cut that expense out. One is you could think about regular gasoline. Second is you could shut your credit off and stop paying for credit monitoring. And then the third is you can really look at what your income looks like, and then that might help you set how you're going to manage your expenses. I also got a request for something that I've talked about a couple of times on my show. I've talked about this idea of buying your fourth car with cash and how you think about doing that. And so I got an email request from the KRB clan. Thanks so much for listening to the show, by the way, and thanks for the reviews. I really appreciate that. It makes a huge difference. And their question was, how do we get to a place where we really can buy our cars for cash? So what I thought I would do in this show is walk you through how that works. So the first thing I did to kind of ground the data, because, you know, I think sometimes these things can be kind of data heavy. So the first thing I did is I went looking for the most popular car in America, by the way, still the Honda Accord. And so a, well, a well-equipped Honda Accord sells for about $30,000. Now, I've always done this on a $25,000 first loan. So here's what I'm going to say. My assumption is you have either $5,000 down payment or a trade in the first car. Then what I'm going to say is you finance the difference, about $25,000 for four years at 4%, because that's about what car loans are at right now. And that would equal a monthly payment of $562.60. And the idea is you pay that same payment for four years, and that takes the total cost of the car to $32,000, $27,000 in loan payments plus the original $5,000 down. Now, I also picked the Honda Accord because, newsflash, they have the best trade-in value of a five-year-old car. About 34.5% of the fair market value is the equivalent of what the used car price is at the time of trade-in. Take good care of your car. Maybe you get a little bit more, beat it up, maybe get a little bit less. But I just went with the average because, you know, it's hard to be too specific. So after the four years is up, I keep my car for one more year, and then I save that car payment. So the car payment that I save is that $562.60, and I save it for the next year. So when I go to buy my next car, I have $6,751 in cash, plus I have my trade, which at the ratio of 34.5% is about $10,350, which means between my cash and my trade, I have a little over $17,000 for my next car. Now, my next car is going to cost a little bit more than the last one, so I added inflation there, and I said that same car five years from now is going to cost me a little bit more money, so I factored that in, And then I have that $17,000 plus for the down payment. And then that means I'm going to have a loan of about $12,000. Now, I don't finance that $12,000 for four years because I'm used to paying $562 a month. I'm going to keep the payment close to the same. So when I was playing with my calculator, I got to a two-year payment of $517 a month. So I financed that $11,900 for $517 a month, 
And then after two years, I own my car, but I keep it for five years, just like my last car. And I save that $517 a month for three years. Now I have $18,612 plus the value of my trade, which is still about $10,000. And altogether, I have a deposit of $28,615, which means I only need a loan of about $5,018, which I could finance for one year. And then after that, over the next four years, I save actually more than I'm going to need for buying the new, the new Honda. So I can do it in four years. If I do, you know, if I do four-year loans, followed by two-year loans, followed by a one-year loan. If I couldn't do a $500 payment, the same math works if I buy a car that's a little less money. So if you can't afford a $562 payment, you probably shouldn't buy a $30,000 car. You should probably look to buy a car that allows you to have a car payment that you can afford that you will be able to pay off in four years. Now, when you go to the car dealership, they're always happy to sell you five-year financing, six-year financing. You can buy more things, but you should use this as a baseline for how you think about vehicles. If you can't afford the four-year car loan, you probably can't afford the car. Now, if you do this, what ends up happening is over the first three cars, you end up paying, you know, about $4,000 in financing over that period versus about $4,000 in financing every time you buy a car if you're always financing the most amount of money. So then over 12 years, if I pay $4,000 in financing every year, you know, every time I get a car, then that's $12,000 in interest that I'm paying for a car that I've never had. Or I could actually have the car with that. And that is how you get to the place where you buy your cars for cash. Thanks again for taking time to send in the question. And I'm always happy to answer questions on the air. Please let me know if you have any other questions wherever you find your podcasts. The best place to put your questions is on the KT's Money Matters website. However, I do also see them if they come in on iTunes. So feel free to put it there. Also, if you had feedback for the show, you know I'm always gratefully accepting that and that you know you can make that Apple magic happen on iTunes just by taking a moment to review my show. I appreciate it and I look forward to next year. Thanks again. Until we talk soon. Thanks for listening to KT's Money Matters with KT Thomas. For more information, past episodes, and show notes, go to www.ktsmoneymatterspodcast.com. Make sure you subscribe and recommend it at iTunes, Overcast, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.